Welcome to the Prima Donna podcast. I'm Nat Grant, a composer from Australia interested in the connection between storytelling, memory and sound. In this series, I'm making what I've called sonic portraits, pictures of women who I consider to be my artistic elders, Australian artists from a range of disciplines who've had incredible careers and should be more well known. The portraits comprise interview recordings collaged with my own original music. For more info, check out primadonnapodcast.com. The third portrait is of internationally renowned feminist playwright, actor and teacher Sandra Schottlander. Sandra has founded several theatre companies, including the Mime and Mumbles Deaf Theatre Group. She's heavily involved in Women Playwrights International. She teaches writing workshops that always include a physical warm-up, and she is passionate about women setting their own agendas and telling their own stories. I was born in Melbourne, yes, in 1941. I was born and bred in Melbourne and went to school here and went to Melbourne University. If I start with the fact that I I, uh, did an arts degree and I already had, I had a teaching uh, bursary so that I was paid to go. We were the aristocrats of the university. We were paid to go uh, to the university and you had to teach three years wherever the education department sent you. In my case, because I wanted to be an actor from childhood, really an actor or a farmer, I wasn't sure which, uh, because I loved the, I loved both. <laughs> I loved the country, I loved animals, but I loved the stage. And I was taken to the stage, to, th- to theatre by my parents at a very young age. And they uh, encouraged a love of the, all the arts. Were they artists themselves? They weren't. Uh, my father was an actuary, so he, his, he was, before that he was a teacher of mathematics, and my mother was an accountant, one of the first women accountants in Victoria, probably, the handful, first handful. But they both loved the arts, and I am sure that uh, that their encouragement assisted me. But I also, uh, from as I say, from childhood, I wanted to act, and I wanted to be in some in theatre. And in fact, um, I had two playmates, one on either side, lived either side, and we would give concerts for our parents and my mother would play the piano and we would sing and we would give concerts Uh, so I was already performing as a child. (laughs) When I uh, taught, I taught at, um, at Caulfield Boys Tech, 48 boys in a class I stayed in Melbourne. I volunteered to teach at the t- in the technical system, 
um, so that I would stay in Melbourne, so that I would be able to act in plays here. And I acted for uh, university pros. It was Tin Alley Players. Uh, so I acted with them. I acted with a Jewish group called Judean Players. Um, we did review work and so on, and I wrote review work that I could perform myself as well. I was moved from Caulfield Boys Tech to the Girls Tech, Box Hill Girls Tech, mainly because I had such um, continual laryngitis from shouting at the boys. At Box Hill Girls Tech um, was easier and I certainly was able to do a bit of drama with the girls as well and they put on a performance of um, Midsummer Night's Dream. But I had saved enough money to be able to go to England two and a half years. I missed the term. I missed the third term of the third year and I fulfilled what I wanted to do, which was go to England to be an actor. But um, I did act in three repertory com companies in England, two Agatha Christie's, and I was uh, the witch in Pinocchio in Halifax. But I fell into also being a dresser, a dresser for Royal Shakespeare Company in London, which was fantastic because I saw the best actors, Derek Jacobi, Ian Holmes, uh, Glenda Jackson. I saw them from backstage. And that, I think, was a great help to my knowledge of theatre. By the way, I was um, with the Royal Shakespeare Company. Uh, they were doing Henry V, and they were uh, they would come go on stage as French soldiers, and uh, they would come off stage, and I would put a different cloak, cap, and gloves on them, and they would become English soldiers. And uh, I was on stage in the uh, backstage putting on their costumes and the actors would be chanting and working themselves up to go into battle. And there'd be sounds of battle, cannon, and I was terrified. And I never know whether I got the right costumes on them. <laughs> it was a wonderful experience. So when I came back to Australia, I fell back into teaching. But it I was teaching secondary, uh, by the way, high school, either full-time or part-time till 1975 when I actually gave up the high school teaching. But in the meantime, I formed, uh, that is when I formed the drama group, the Plantagenets. And the Plantagenets performed at the Architecture Theatre at Melbourne University. And we were doing 
Year 12 syllabus plays. The first one was St Joan in 1970. Uh, also did Cherry Orchard, Antigone, Hippolytus, um, and one that was not on the syllabus, we did Black, black Comedy and No Exit in the same program. My idea was to combine school students with professional actors. And in St. Joan, that happened. But it, I realised that it was too difficult to achieve. And so in the other productions, they were all adult actors. So that was the Plantagenets. And then I also was working at the Augustine Centre in Hawthorne, um, running drama workshops with two other people. That was also very helpful <laughs> for the journey into writing, really. Uh, we did a lot of improvisation and improvised pieces, um, whole performances. One I called Gusto Augusto because it was the Augustine Centre. Then a, a person in the family um, was deaf or was having hard of hearing and, and went to the Society for the Deaf and they said they wanted a, a, a drama group for, their young, for young deaf people between the ages of about 18 or, and 24, something like that. And he said, oh, there's someone in my family who might, might do that. So he came to me and said, was I interested? And I said, yes, I am. I had studied mime in workshops uh, and I loved mime. Mind you, uh, at that stage, there was a Canadian Theatre of the Deaf and they spoke as well. But I thought I would like to keep mine to mime rather than spoken. I think perhaps I've, I've thought that I could focus that way on the one thing. And the young deaf people who came really taught me about mime. They just were natural mime artists. So we called it Melbourne Mime and Mumbles. We did several performances and one of them was at the back theatre of the Pram Factory. We would improvise uh, and it was just beautiful work that they did. So that was Melbourne Mime and Mumbles. That was in about 1976. I probably worked with them for a year or a couple of years uh, and then <laughs> They moved on and I moved on too. Uh, and none of them had studied mime or anything like that, but as I say, they were just natural. Towards the end of the 70s that I thought uh, I needed, really I needed some sort of um, different scene and that's when I went to America. But I have to say that I had been to England in 1972 again and in 1976. 
and I had worked as a, a dresser again um, in the West End in several theatres. One was with Margareta Scott in a piece and Rita Touchingham and Barbara Jefford in Mistress of Novices, which was a piece about St Bernadette. And uh, Rita Touchingham was St Bernadette. Um, Margareta Scott was the, she was the mother superior. And I had to dress her and every time she came off a stage, I had to be at any entrance or exit with a glass of water for Margareta. <laughs> so uh, again, I was able to see really fantastic actors um, from backstage. Then in 1976, I went into the musical Stop the World, I Want to Get Off. I became dresser for that. Uh, and again, so I had a little experience in music theatre, <laughs> musical theatre. Um, but by the end of the 70s, I decided to go to America. And it was a life-changing trip. I decided to go to a writing school and I went to the Women Writers Centre. So at this stage, I think that I had decided that I would focus on the writing. Um, by that stage, I had written short stories which had been published in magazines. I, as I say, I'd written um, review pieces, funny pieces that I could perform myself, but not really a whole play. Women's Writers' Centre was in upstate New York in Casanova. Um, it snowed, we were snowed in for five months, really. <laughs> you could barely move out of there. Uh, so you certainly had to write. By this stage, I was interested in feminism and I wanted to go to a place that would have a feminist emphasis, which Women Writers Centre did. first lesson they told, they taught was to call yourself a writer and uh, the second lesson was possibly to call yourself uh, a, women, a woman writer uh, but to, to write work that was relevant for women. And I also was able to hear people, incredible people like Adrienne Rich um, who was a leader in the feminist movement and I was able to go and hear her speak and other women who uh, were very important to me. It was a very important time but the other important thing was that in the February break I went to New York and I was staying with a woman that I did not know well. She was a um, friend of a friend. And she would go to work uh, and I would go into New York with her. I was staying in New York at this stage. And she, I didn't have keys to go back to her flat. So I would, or apartment, I should say. <laughs> um, so I would wander around New York all day and I just lived in the art galleries. 
and adored them, including the Metropolitan. And it was in the Metropolitan that I found the corner. I was looking for Picasso's portrait of Gertrude Stein, being a fan of Gertrude Stein. Uh, and when I went into that corner and fixed my eyes on it, my eyes went to, an, to the other corner and there was this huge head of an iris looking very female, rather vagina-like, which was um, O'Keeffe's black iris. Uh, and I went, oh, wow, and broke the code of the... I had to exclaim out loud, breaking the code of the gallery. Uh, and I sat in that corner with um, O'Keeffe's painting and a Picasso's painting of Stein, thinking I am going to write a play and two women are going to meet in this corner of the museum. So that, when I came back to Australia, that play became Framework. Well, it was 1980-81 that I was in New York, so uh, it took me the two years uh, before the premiere production of Framework at the Universal Theatre in Fitzroy. <laughs> yeah, and Framework has gone around Australia, completely around Australia. It's been performed in America, in Portland, Oregon, and it was a runner-up in Glines Theatre Competition in New York. Um, and therefore, it had staged uh, readings, productions by New York professional Glines Theatre actors. It was done 2004 uh, at La Mama, that was the second performance in... It was actually the third performance in Melbourne. It had been done in Brunswick before then by another small group. But it, uh, it tends to be a play that will go on. <laughs> the Age Critic uh, said, if there is any such thing as a classic, in gay theatre framework is it, which is, was a very nice tribute. Framework, by and large, <laughs> was, was well-reviewed. Um, and funnily enough, perhaps less well-reviewed by, uh, I'm thinking of of some feminist, well, not feminist, but um, women reviewers in, say, Adelaide, I was thinking, there's some very good reviews in the mainstream. But not, but the other, um, some of the women thought it was not feminist enough. In what way? Uh, well, <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I can't, I, I, I can't enlarge on that, but um, what I think is interesting, I was uh, reading, in fact, 
in gay and lesbian plays, Bruce Parr, that Currency Press put out. And they, in um, the early 90s, uh, which has Is That You, Nancy, collected phone calls of Gertrude Stein in it. And he quotes a male critic who says that lesbian plays are mostly written just for lesbians, just written by women for other women. And that's what annoyed me very much. And I think Bruce Parr is right. This is, uh, I've, had the, I've had people say, why don't you write about men? Well, I do, actually. Um, and I have written a, nu a number of plays without lesbian characters. And that's what I think I found the most irritating. I think the mainstream crit critics have been kind to me and <laughs> well, I've used the word kind, but they, the mainstream critics have said that my work does reach larger audiences, dare I say it, universal. They have said that, not always though. And Angels of Power, uh, I was reading a crit in Melbourne Times when Angels of Power, which came out in 1991, the same year that Is That You, Nancy?, uh, came out. I did two plays in the one year. And uh, it's obvious that the male critic in Melbourne Times feels that I've been deeply unkind to men and <laughs> he says that I have trivialised uh, my subject matter, which it, uh, Angels of Power was about... Um, women scientists controlling women's body. It's about women aligning across parliament. That's what I wanted to write about. And uh, across parties. And when uh, I first wrote, uh, first researched, I had been told by a friend about Marilyn Waring in New Zealand, who with a man, a male politician, crossed the floor over the nuclear-free New Zealand, New Zealand nuclear-free bill. And she, that brought down Muldoon's government, the uh, National Party right-wing government. And I did research that, but, um, but decided that I would not... Uh, Marilyn was uneasy, obviously, about my writing about it, even though all the politicians had talked to me. They were eager to talk to a playwright rather than a journalist. I came back to Australia and um, Australian women politicians, some that I knew, took, took me round Parliament, the Federal Parliament. And there were enough women, had they aligned across parties at that time, they could have actually <laughs> brought down governments, but uh, they didn't, because in Australia that doesn't happen. You know, you vote with your party, obviously, except on a conscience vote. So uh, I wanted to write about that, about women aligning across parties, and I needed an issue, uh, and Renata Klein, who wrote about... Um, 
reproductive technology and genetic engineering, said, why don't you use that as an issue? So I thought, why not? It's scientists' control over women's bodies. So I did. And uh, when I started writing it, with ordinary politicians, it just didn't have resonance. And I had been writing phone calls and I'd written in it is that you Nancy was a collection of phone calls of eight women lesbian women trying to sort out their lives on the telephone one of them uh, is trying to get through to Gertrude Stein to sort out her life for her because she admires her, which is hard because Gertrude Stein's been dead for 30 years. So it's, a, it's phone calls and uh, messages, pho- message answer machines. Now it would, of course, be text messages. But in those days, that's what it was. And I'd been writing that. Also, I'd been writing phone calls of the goddesses Greek and Roman, trying to get through to Zeus to say they weren't satisfied with their positions. And I even had one of Mary trying to get through to the boss at the top. So <laughs> so I decided to use these archetypal typal voices. And the Virgin Mary becomes a Labour Party, member of the Labour Party. Athena becomes a member of the Liberal Party. And out of the wilderness movement, Dinah Hunt uh, becomes an independent greenie. So they are your politicians. And Mary has a son, Thomas Didymus, who is the twin of Jesus, who was killed on a street corner in an anti-Vietnam war protest. And Thomas is a scientist. And he's a um, reproductive scientist and he's creating an embryo. Uh, and it is for his wife, Marta. So, <laughs> so um, and it turns out that he's created it out of the sperm of Jesus that was donated before Jesus was killed. And Marta thinks that it's her eggs, but it turns out that her eggs didn't work. So Thomas has used the eggs of a past lover who was killed in a car accident called Helen. And there is a scene where um, they go into the parliamentary dining room, the federal parliamentary dining room, and Uh, to tell Mary that Martha is pregnant. But it turns out, in fact, and Thomas confesses that it's neither her eggs nor Thomas's sperm. And that that is in the dining room, and it is a funny scene. So it's satire. But that's where the male, uh, in the Melbourne Times, the male critics said, I trivialise the whole subject of birth and um, genetic engineering and reproductive technology and it was very naughty of me.
But that play actually has uh, had a number of performances too here. Uh, it's had uh, readings in America in, in a number of places. Um, one of them that I thought uh, was fabulous because there are about 12 people in it, 12 actors in it, fantastic uh, actors in Horizons Theatre in Washington. It was a beautiful reading of Angels of Power, yes. It, that play could be done now with the surrogacy issue, yes, yeah. Framework was 1983. There is a play in between Framework and Angels of Power and uh, is that you, Nancy? Selective phone calls of Gertrude Stein and others. And that is Blind Salome. And that was 1985. I wanted to write something on Jung and his theory of the anima animals. The animals in the female and the anima in the male. So in other words, Jung is saying that uh, men have a female side and women have a ma masculine side. But he called the female side blind Salome in and he called that uh, she he said that Salome was blind because she didn't understand the meaning of things and that was his anima so uh, I wanted to write a play where women define themselves where they find their own language Although I very much do appreciate Jung's, uh, particularly dream, ideas about dreams, but I wanted to write about women defining themselves and what is masculine and what is feminine, for a woman to say what is female and feminine. And that became Blind Salome. And again, uh, as with the, uh, the, the parliamentary idea of women combining across parties, it won't work unless you've got something else. So with the, uh, to go to an idea like women, you know, definitions and, and language and so on, um, what I did was I gave those ideas to characters I'd written a short story about. And they were, um, there was a husband and wife, Bernice and Philip, and Bernice's sister, Della, take a close friend, Christopher, who's a psychiatrist, and they go to Assisi together. The four of them go on a trip to Italy. And it's in Italy that... Um, they explore the ideas of anima animals and so on. But through a love story, a sort of love story, because, well, a story about passion, put it that way. Because Della and, and Philip go off searching for antiques and 
a pig runs into the car and they're, they're stranded in a village overnight. And it is at this moment that Bernice feels that Christopher and she have um, some sort of frisson, <laughs> some sort of attraction, uh, and she's prepared to explore it. But really, what Christopher wants, he wants to be St Francis of Assisi. Uh, Christopher wants Bernice to be his Sinclair, to sit there and listen to him. Bernice wants passion. <laughs> and actually, um, when Philip and uh, uh, Della come back, Denise said, what happened? And Della said, nothing. And she said, oh. And she said, why not? And Della said, well, no, nothing, nothing happened. She said, why not? You know, she said, passion. She, she believes in it. If she would have actually forgiven her sister had something happened. Um, look, I write roles for men as well. I, I don't only write lesbian pieces. I believe that I, I, I always say that I've done my PhD in human relationships, otherwise I couldn't write. And part of that is about passion <laughs> in human relationships. I think it's important for, for women to explore uh, lesbian, male, female, it, but particularly to find their own language and write about themselves uh, in their own way. With Blind Salome, I realised that I've taken, that religion has come into my, uh, into my place because it's in Angels of Power in that, Mary, um, Madres, Thomas, and it was a Catholic friend who told me that it's thought Jesus had a twin, Thomas. That's why I use that. One of the um, very fortunate things in my life was to become friends with Rosemary Keith Kerb uh, through Judith Rodriguez, who is the Australian poet. And she, Rosemary came to Australia. She was uh, lecturing at Rollins College in Florida. And she came with the Rollins College students who were doing their uh, study abroad. And Ro Judith said she thought I should meet Rosemary, and I did, and we formed a friendship. Uh, now, Rosemary has written about my plays, and that has been published in America. It was through her that I met a lot of American people who have been um, influential. Uh, and one of those was Richard Sharine and Marilyn Sharine, 
Both of them were in Salt Lake City, husband and wife, Richard at the University of Utah, and Marilyn at a college in Salt Lake City. And I became good friends with them and have visited them again, but that meant that my plays um, were actually, Is That You, Nancy, was done in uh, Salt Lake City. I've had many readings there at both uh, the college and that Marilyn taught at and at the University of Nevada as well. Uh, I've had readings done all around America because of Rosemary. Now, Rosemary wrote a famous book called Lesbian Nuns Breaking Silence. I'm sorry, she edited it with Nancy Manahan. And it is 49 accounts from nuns who consider themselves lesbian. And it became famous and, and Rosemary became very known when uh, Donahue, she was invited to go on Donahue, uh, and <laughs> it has been translated into a number of languages. It was banned in Ireland, uh, and then um, a nun and a priest, I think, got onto the television and supported the book. So Rosemary. Uh, has been it's been wonderful to have uh, that intellectual <laughs> and her uh, we also have done readings of framework together uh, and we've traveled to many places together Lady in Waiting I wrote in 2014. Lady in Waiting came about because of Women Playwrights International, which has been an essential part of my growth as a writer, as a playwright. It's been fantastic to be associated from the beginning with Women Playwrights International. And after the Stockholm, there was a conference in Stockholm in 2012 and my uh, a, a very good friend who I'd known since 1997 Margareta who who um, has been on the management committee of women playwrights with me uh, got cancer and um, there were eight of us who she was of course um, was a very difficult time for her uh, there were eight of us who were her close friends who wrote to her and rang her up and so on. And what, an American, Kathleen Betsko, whose idea it was to have a, an international women playwrights organisation in the first place, Kathleen lives in Buffalo, upstate New York. Uh, Kathleen said, now look, I think all of us should write a piece, You Eight Women, on cancer, having it or supporting someone through it. And we should try to get these pieces, put them together in some way for the conference, the next conference in 2015 in South Africa. And uh, I actually felt I couldn't do it right on cancer. But then I um, was in England and 
and her cancer, when she was diagnosed with cancer, we would walk up to the park uh, near where I live and there were castor oil trees, I think they are. They're enormous trees with pods and the pods clank in the wind. And we would walk up there. And Joan wrote a poem um, and included those trees in the poem. And uh, she t talked about the tumour, seeing it on the um, ultrasound and calling it a white pearl, and she called it her lady-in-waiting. And I, I thought about that poem and I had an idea for a play. And that became Lady-in-waiting. Uh, which has autobiographical reference because Joan, my partner, when she was diagnosed with cancer, she had a ticket in her pocket to go to London for the birth of a second grandchild. And she uh, kept saying that she um, didn't, when she, she just went for a mammogram and she, uh, they told her she had cancer. And she kept saying, I don't care about the cancer, I've got to get to England. So, <laughs> so I used all that in the play. She also rang me and she said, where are you? And I said, I've put the car in for a service. And she said, well, I've got cancer. I said, what? <laughs> and so I, st I said, stay there, I'll come and get you. And she said, you can't, the car's <laughs> in the garage for us and I said I'll get there and a friend drove me there so I was able to use that and that's the that's how I got lady in waiting yeah. I do it very seldom this is the first play I, I've pro I'm sure I've put uh, corners of my life into plays but not like this uh, this is the first time I've done it, and it, uh, she was fine about it. And also, uh, I was able to include her poetry for the first time, which I have never done before. And so that was really something. So that was the, uh, the uh, how Lady in Waiting came about. But in between, I had a long silence from 2000 to 2014. I ran writing workshops all through that time. I've never stopped, well, until the last couple of years when I've focused on my writing. Uh, I really haven't stopped doing writing workshops all around in uh, Victoria, New South Wales, in America, in the Philippines. <laughs> yes. And I even went back to uh, teaching running writing workshops for school children at Santa Maria College. Yes, and that's something I wanted to talk about too, the influence of uh, Women Playwrights International and Maria Irene Fornes, because Maria's been a real influence in my writing. She is Cuban-American, living in New York, uh, very well-known mainstream 
writer, extremely well known, who tragically now has Alzheimer's or dementia. I first met her uh, at the first International Women Playwrights Conference. Now this is in 1998 and I was funded to go to Buffalo where Anna K. France was the director of the conference. Kathleen Betsko initiated the idea and Anna K. France carried it out. And Anna K. France has been associated with all the conferences ever since then. And I was so fortunate to go to the first conference with Alison Lisser and other Australians, Dorothy Hewitt being one of them. And Alison, by the way, wrote a lesbian play that was done mainstream before Framework. She's a Sydney writer and the play is called Pinball. And uh, I was very wanting to get to know Alison. I, very, I saw Pinball and it was terrific, you know, and, and it, it influenced me that she was writing about lesbian characters. It's a custody case to lesbian women who are trying to get custody of children. Difficult, in, particularly in those days. So hers was uh, staged in, 1990, in 1981, whereas Framework was 1983. And Alison and I were both at the International Women Playwrights Conference, also uh, Rosemary Kierkegaard. <laughs> Rosemary and I have gone to uh, many countries where there have been international women playwright conferences together. We've travelled a lot together. Anna K. France and I have as well. <laughs> uh, and these are the friendships you make through a, an organisation made up of women playwrights and actors and directors. And the first one was Buffalo. The second conference was in Toronto and I didn't go to that. The third one was Adelaide, fourth one Galway, fifth one Athens and Philippines, uh, it's been in the Philippines, India, Stockholm, South Africa, Indonesia. The next one will be Chile and it's every three years because that's, it takes that to organise them and because women playwrights do not have a lot of money and they're dependent on um, the goodwill of a university, a theatre, or women working very, very hard. <laughs> and all of those combined, yes. So, uh, but Women Playwrights has led to my work being, uh, as I said, in the Philippines, I've, uh, I've, I taught. After the, um, after the conference there, I taught at a college called Easter College, which was uh, a teacher's college, and I ran writing workshops for Filipino people there. So Women Playwrights International has introduced me. I have friends who write, who are playwrights all around the world. Uh, I have seen works by other women all around the world. And um, there are keynote speakers um, who have inspired me. 
and also um, uh, workshops as well. Now, at the first one, Maria Irene Fornes was there, and that's where her, I met her, and her play Abingdon Square was performed there. And I had, I know that Feifu and her friends, which was an earlier play of Maria Irene Fornes, had influenced Framework with its lesbian characters. Uh, it was on here in Melbourne at the Athenian Theatre. That's where I saw it. And I developed a, a friendship. I asked Irene, Maria Irene, could I go into her workshops in New York? And she allowed me in. <laughs> and she, I went into her workshop for a week. And that was the most um, wonderful experience. And I uh, thereby was able to get a method of running writing workshops, uh, which you can do as, uh, and it, you write in the workshop, uh, and you write from visualizations, and you start with a physical warm up. And she, uh, Irene, would give us cues, maybe a sentence, maybe an object, maybe a task, like to persuade or to clean or to anything, and you include those in the writing. What it does is it, it gets it gets rid of it, it, you can hear your own voice. Yes, um, I always used to say that I wrote with uh, the feminist the mainstream critics on one shoulder, the feminist critics on the other, and my parents on my head saying this play will not make any money. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I'm being terribly unfair. My parents were marvelous. Um, my mother was marvellous. She was um, a real patron of mine and encouraged me all the way. But um, those senses, you can't write when you've got those senses. You can't hear your own voice. And Maria Irene's method uh, makes sure that you get rid of the senses and you come out of the workshop with work that you can work on. And it's, I find that it doesn't matter what age, from year seven school children to seniors, um, and I've taught in seniors as well, uh, respond to this method. You can add a um, little bit, I always add a bit, I read a bit to start with and I talk a bit to start with, but you must do that physical warm up as well because um, you need energy to write. In the beginning, I actually formed for Framework the first two productions of Framework in Melbourne and Adelaide F uh, Festival Fringe. And for Blind Salome, I formed a little small company called Gemma Productions with two friends of mine, Roy Newell and Mervyn Trim. Uh, Mervyn was working uh, as a set designer at the Victorian College of the Arts and Roy was um, a friend who uh, had studied art but loved theatre. So um, we formed Gemma Productions and I actually directed. Now in those days that was thought to be very cheeky that the writer directed. It isn't now. Well, Irene Fornes believed that it was perfectly all right for the writer to direct. 
in those days I was thought of as a, a little bit of an upstart <laughs> to uh, uh, to do both but it was it became accepted so that was another breaking of the rules yes the school work came about um, obviously Plantagenets led me in that direction and then Penley and Essendon Grammar School, Kathy Samsuri, Catherine Samsuri was their drama director and she wanted somebody to write a play. She had a drama teacher, uh, she had, a, there was a teacher, not a drama teacher, a teacher that I had taught um, in high school and he was now a teacher and he said I had a teacher at Huntingdale High School and she was she gave us drama work that he I think she'd be very good and Catherine said I know Sandra and she employed me <laughs> that was a piece about um, women the first women doctors and it was about a woman, a Sydney woman doctor, and it was actually based on a real woman. The woman was not allowed to practice in Sydney. She was allowed to become a doctor, but they were not allowed to practice. And she came down, and we were a little bit more progressive, and she was able to practice at the Queen Victoria Hospital. And she, um, it was called Full Circle. It was a time when women were uh, riding bicycles, going in bicycle, races and they were therefore wearing pants so it was a, a, a revolution in dress as well so that became full circle uh, and I I have done um, several full time uh, sorry full length plays St Kilda story about our St Kilda and the Scottish St Kilda islands a mystery set in a circus called the Crimson Firefly Circus. And um, that had a, a, the clowns did clown acts between each scene. And there was a trained clown. Uh, there was, uh, Catherine employed a, a person to teach them clown acts. So it, it was just, and there was also an orchestra. It was just wonderful. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so I did, and I did other works with them as well. I did a, um, a devised piece called Power Play about different sorts of power that, and the students, uh, it was different sorts of power. For example, one was an eagle that came to sit on her hand and that was power. <laughs> and uh, various sorts. Uh, so, and I did Antigone, uh, it, it wasn't a full production, it was parts of it, actually, um, and so on. So that, but also MLC, I did a piece on the French Revolution, on women in the French Revolution, called Chronicles of the French Revolution, um, was done for them. And they, that was quite remarkable because they had 80 in the cast. I hadn't realised. I wrote it as an ensemble piece, which could be done by maybe 10 
students or 15, but the MLC really had a huge production. Um, and that's been done a number of times, including in Tasmania at Calvin Christian College. Uh, and that was, I think, the first play that they did written, uh, that was written by a contemporary person, Australian. That, that was done by the University of Launceston as well. And most recently by Swinburne Secondary College students who do drama there. And they did it as an ensemble piece with probably 10 actors and it was beautifully done. Yeah, so that's the school. Um, the first one was 1988 and I went through to probably 2000 writing school pieces. Yes, as, yes. What am I writing now? This is a question I, I can't answer. Uh, I think that the, the last production, An Evening with Sandra Schottlander, um, I've been so focused on that, I, I have not been thinking beyond it. So it, <laughs> <laughs> I'm hoping that there are still words inside me, as Gertrude Stein might say, would say. Uh, that's what I'm hoping, and uh, there, there's certainly um, Echidna and Clam is yet to be performed, but whether it, whether it will or whether something new will happen, I don't know. It's about memory locked in the body. <laughs> it's about a woman who uh, goes to a masseur's and uh, she associates herself, well, first of all, Every time the masseurs presses a part of the body and says, hmm, very sore there, isn't it? Uh, was that a, a, an accident? Out would come a story, and each story is a memory. So the, the woman who is being massaged um, has had a, 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 a relationship with another woman, a very important relationship, obviously, one of deep love, but also bewilderment, I suppose, that she lost it, the relationship, uh, with a woman who associates herself as a clam, with a clam. And the woman says that she opens out and snaps shut. And the echidna thinks, well, I curl into a ball and bristle. So <laughs> there's not much hope that an echidna, and of course a, uh, an echidna is a land animal and a clam, is a sea animal, so they're going to have a very difficult time. It is the masseurs that brings out the stories, and she is fascinated, and she can't wait for the next story. <laughs> the masseurs. And I think of it as memory locked in the body, in our cells, yes. So that's what it's about, and I won't tell the ending. Echidna and Clam I started quite a long time ago, but I just didn't finish it. Now I have finished it, uh, but maybe it isn't finished, I'm not sure. But um, I do have an ending. And 
I, I've always said it's about memory locked in the body. And now people like you and I've read, memory seems to be quite a topic these days. Whereas I, I don't know that it was when I wrote it. You've made me think of something, the difference between memory and remembrance, um, which I might explore a little bit. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Prima Donna podcast. For more information or to subscribe for future episodes, visit primadonnapodcast.com.